As a Papuan Australian woman, I acknowledge that I am a settler on this land that I live, work and create on. I acknowledge there are ongoing native title cases on this land today due to the impacts of colonisation and I want to pay my respects to the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of this country and to their elders past, present and emerging. listeners thanks for tuning in to part three in this episode previously we last heard from auntie lisa as i asked the question what recommendations would you make to leaders in these institutions let's get back to where we left off my, my biggest biggest hope if i would because I, i'm at the end of my working life and heading towards the sunset my biggest hope is that those coming after me will, will be given more opportunity to be in that space and be given the freedom to have a voice, a platform to have a voice, so they could be part of the bigger conversation in decision making. Um, That's my biggest hope because that I didn't have, but that doesn't mean that you can't have it. And that's a difference. And at the end of the day, never ever forget, we are no longer the tiny islands in the big ocean. We are the big ocean. We are the owners of the big ocean. That's Mm -hmm. us. We're taking um, a little bit of a different turn now um, as we come to somewhat of a close. Um, want to reflect on some of the projects that you've done. Um, maybe you could share a little bit um, more about a project that you're working on at the moment. Yeah, and then after that, what's been your favourite project to work on, which is always a hard question because um, there's so many. I probably just say rather than going to the, the details, the current project I'm working on is um, setting up or um, being working on the um, living, setting up the Living Museum of Logan, building up. If I were to name two of my favorite objects, uh, two of my favorite um, projects to work on, well, uh, the last show I worked at at the NCB was art from the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And this one doesn't know it, but I've curated your show, but I didn't <laughs> uh, to, I was actually curating that. However, I know, with, I know. however with, with internal internal politics and mm-hmm. I, without going into too much of it, I had to step out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I would have gone crazy. Uh, I went home, for, I left the NC, I, I left, <laughs> I left for Papua New Guinea on the eve of the opening. Mm. And I told the Pacific Islanders, uh, you come in, it's your space, don't worry about me. <clears throat> and for me, that was a big, big thing because it delivered what the, the it, it, it gave me affirmation that the current, uh, the future, I mean, the, the past director had promised me. And my other favorite one was Women's Wealth. Women's Wealth was a show that was like looking into myself. Mm-hmm. I, I felt that after all the all all the all the push and shoves I, I went through uh, to be in that space since to be in this art field since 1997, I felt Women's Wealth for me was a little reward for me. It came about because five years before we actually had the show on Ruth and I and and Talway independently had a conversation because when you look at how art is displayed 
in, in, in context, when you look at art in institutions, when they have art from Papua New Guinea, it's always, always male that gets represented. Mm. When you look at art from the Pacific, Melanesia, Melan- women art is not known, yet women ha- have a, women are the owner of the art, yet they don't have anything. So I had a conversation with Ruth and I said, this is what I'd like to do to honor the women. So we had to narrow it down to Bougainville, the Solomon Island, because including the Solomon Island, because we wanted to include the Solomon Island because Bougainville is culturally belongs to the Solomon Island, politically is Papua New Guinea. And then here in 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 to link it with Australia with First Nations, uh, Lisa Carmichael and Torres Strait is a link. Uh, and then we had uh, what's her name? Um, Lauren, Lauren, uh, Kay Lawrence, even though she was not an indigenous person of Australia or the Pacific, when I look back, I think it was a smart thing to include her. And it, it was also very important for her because women's wealth is not only for the Pacific, women's wealth belongs to women. And she represented women all over the world. And to include her, in my view, meant that even though we took ownership of this, the show as from Bougainville mm-hmm. and from the Pacific, there was also include, inclusive of women all around the world. And that's why it meant a lot to me. Yeah, it's beautiful show. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so my, the current project I'm working on is um, fellowship research that I'm doing with the um, German Maritime Museum. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I'm doing that largely remotely from Melbourne because, you know, Australia's a fortress, can't leave. <laughs> so, um, but that's, that's, that hasn't been a bad thing. Um, so um, I'm affiliated with this other research project that's looking at, that's investigating um, uh, this shipping company called Norddeutsche Lloyd, the North German Lloyds, and they were a major colonial player in the Pacific. Um, they were the second largest shipping company in, at the height of the colonial era. And so they created this network, basically like ocean, oceanic network all the way around, like around the world and particularly in the Pacific. And so it was actually ships that, you know, transported um, objects, bodies, you know, both living and deceased back to Europe. Wow. The ships were this major infrastructure um, that transported things around. And um, and so that that's the kind of research project that I'm affiliated in. But my, my fellowship research is specifically looking at, um, I'm just really interested in how and the movement of Asian and Pacific bodies across the Pacific, because um, being from Rabaul, which is my place of birth, there is so, it's such a cosmopolitan place, like Mm. because of the different waves of colonialism, Mm. um, starting with the Germans, like they um, occupied the top half of New Guinea um, from 1884 till 1914, which is the start of First World War. they um, brought a lot of Asian labourers to help build the infrastructure, build, build the port, uh, the jetty, and and to also work on the plantations in, in around Rabaul, but also in Samoa. And so I became very interested in the movement of Melanesians to German Samoa and the plantations. And so that's, I'm just, I'm deep in that research right now. And just, uh, I've just, just found a list of, um, 
the German trading company, um, uh, Deutsche Handels und Plantagen Gesellschaft, which is DHPG. Mm-hmm. So they were um, they had this monopoly over um, um, over the copper trade historically, and um, they also owned the biggest copper plantation in all of this, like the Southern Hemisphere, which was Muli um, Fanua, um, which is in Samoa. So there's quite a few. And so over the course of like 100 years, this particular German um, trade company, they had a monopoly over only they could transport Melanesian laborers to Samoa. And they transported over 7,000 of us. 7,000. And so I have actually just found the list of all the Melanesian laborers and it's in Canberra. (laughs) So, and I've been collecting these oral histories from community because um, looking into the research, the German history of the colonial trade is known. Um, The Tama Uli and Tiana Uli um, communities of Melanesian Samoans is known, but nobody knows the histories and the stories of the Melanesians that did return back to their islands. And not a lot of the, Melanesians return to the correct islands. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of untangling there that has to be done. And nobody knows those histories. And so I just asked the question online in, in the community forum mm. if anybody had any oral histories and it just went <laughs> it just exploded. And so I'm I'm looking, I'm I'm I've been working with this one um Melanesian woman, she she knows she's not Papua New Guinean, but her great her grandfather was is the descendant of a Melanesian and Samoan. And they she doesn't know much about him. And so I'm trying to find the history through this one community person. Yeah, there's there's so much displacement of our peoples across the Pacific region. And a lot of it was done without consent in terms of like making these decisions of like these policies to remove people's bodies and like, you know, like there was no consent in like in terms of like the annexation of Papua New Guinea, like into divisions mm-hmm. between British Papua and German New Guinea. Like who who gave the consent for that? <laughs> Wasn't like we didn't. Someone in Europe made that decision over our lands and our bodies. And so the German colonial history, um, they're, they're starting to really investigate it in Germany, which is good, you know, because Australia hasn't done that. We're not there yet. Um, and that's that's why I get really frustrated with Australia because it's like we're always lagging behind Europe or America and it's like, oh, you know what, I'll take my services elsewhere. <laughs> when you guys are ready to catch up, come and talk to me. <laughs> Can you put your... Um, PhD in like high school education curriculum in the Pacific or something <laughs> when you're finished. I just feel like, like, where does this become something that everyone learns about? Uh, yeah, well, that's, I'm going to be writing this up in a blog post and it'll be published soon. So I'm just, I'm still trying to distill all the research and just get permissions from community to share these histories because they're not my stories. Hmm. Um, and it takes a long time. And like, I'm doing this remotely. Like I'm just having to message community over Facebook, you know, and it's just building that trust and rapport and creating a culturally safe space online. Like, you know, there's I'm having to like really adapt and how to actually do the research and build those relationships with community in a very different way because of COVID. Um, so that's, that's the fellowship research. It's, that's not my PhD. It's different, but um, my, I couldn't decide with my favorite project. Um, I thought about two projects in particular that haven't weren't necessarily my favorite, but they taught me a lot because mm. they were so freaking difficult. Um, but I'm not going to talk about them. 
Um, I'd rather talk about my PhD. And I think that's my favorite thing. That has got to be my favorite thing because it, it is focusing on the things that I'm really passionate about. And that is, Mm. um, that is Papua New Guinean women, um, visual representation and photography. So that's, that's, that's what my PhD is about is looking at the history of, um, visual representation of Papua New Guinean women through photography and filmmaking. And so, uh, I'm only, I'm just interested in like really amplifying Papua New Guinea women's lives mm. historically and contemporarily. Like that's, that's it. Like, I feel like I found like, you know, when you get into alignment, you're like, that's it, bam. I found my home. Yeah. Cause photography is like my first love. Like I, I did it in high school. I was really lucky to have picked up a camera in high school. Um, mm. My science teacher, Mr. Braun, um, he taught this mini course on photography and I was always really curious about what you know what people were doing in this dark room I was like what are they doing and, <laughs> yeah and then I just as soon as I picked up the camera I was like oh yeah this is it like this is it uh, and so that was it I just felt like I was was like a natural affinity like ha- holding the camera um, and then and just and also looking and understanding images and um so I am trying with my PhD research I'm essentially want to create um examine and create like the chronology of Papua New Guinea photographers and filmmakers. Like mm. everybody knows like about, you know, the body arts, the, the ceramics, the, um, you know, the um, carvings, weaving, like everybody knows about like Papua New Guinean arts, but nobody has like really documented like photographers and filmmakers. No one's doing it. Oh, good one. Yeah. No one's doing it. So that's the gap in the knowledge that's missing. And so, um, yeah, so it's finding like, you know, you know, I've already felt like I already know who like the first female filmmaker is and who was the first female photographer. Like I found them. It's just, I've just got to get into the archives and do the research and it's just really hard at the moment. So, um, because I can't get in anywhere. Um, but that's okay. Like there's time, you know, like sometimes these things are just all about timing. So just, just, just quietly waiting, waiting for the ancestors to say, okay, now we're ready, Lisa, you can come in now. (laughs) (laughs) There's a place and a time for everything. And that's what yeah. yeah, it's just waiting. It's just waiting. It's like, oh, okay, it's not the right time. It's just got to wait, be patient. So, um, so that's, yeah, that's my PhD. So I, I know that through the PhD, I will like, yes, formally step into the curatorial role to sort of put it that way. Yeah. But I, I won't, I won't call myself a curator until I've actually done something that's like technically the curator, like the curator, curatorial role. Like I won't do it. I, I refuse. I just I feel like that <laughs> label, I'm not ready to wear that yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's really exciting hearing about those things <laughs> I think my comment about the education system is just knowing it's going to take a long time but it's just so exciting to think this knowledge is being generated and documented mm. and hopefully one day you know I mean growing up in the Pacific I was doing Cambridge studies through the high school I was in and we were learning about the industrial periods in Europe and you know just um the history of just our one island maybe if it was Tongan history but the Pacific is just such a there's such a gap Mm. to learn about it and to learn about it from a voice and perspective that Mm. um is our yeah is our own so it's really exciting but I know it's a long journey (laughs) to get here um yeah I think maybe current project is 
um, very consuming right now. It's the Asia Pacific, 10th Asia Pacific Triennial. And been it's only the second one I've been involved in, but the first I've been involved in from, I guess, in one way, like the entirety of the process. I kind of came in halfway before. I, I mean, I say that, but also you can see that every APT um, is really comes out of very long-term research mm. and conversations. And it's something I really love about it. Yeah. I mean, this is, this has been a real eye opener and a huge learning curve. It's almost, you know, curators kind of take the lead on certain projects, but I think from my case in particular, I can say that the ones I've been um, privileged to kind of play a, a more central role in still just feels like such a huge team effort on the part of all the curators involved and um, the artists. So yeah, I was really fortunate to have to be able to kind of do some extra research, particularly in Tonga and Fiji and work with artists there and then to uh, extend into a bit of a pilot project, which is the ACE Community Engagement Project. And they've just been, I mean, the way that it's opened my eyes to the com- the way that Pacific Art contributes to a more regional conversation, mm-hmm. like the Asia Pacific framing has been um, huge for me. I think growing up in Polynesia also the way that it's allowed me to learn more about Melanesia and Micronesia, which are the strengths, you know, Melanesia has definitely been a strength of, mm. of um, the Pacific art, um, world in, in, in Kogoma and now moving into Micronesia more purposefully, I guess. Mm. Um, Northern Oceania, even the terms, it's like, what are the correct terms? Because all of these Micronesia, Melanesia, where, you know, they just don't feel right. Mm. The more you talk to the people that live there and the artists working and things. So just, yeah, I feel like being able to get to know people from these mm. places and work with co-curators from these mm. places. Um, um, Greg Dvorak and Emelita, who are there. Um, and then also getting to know people in the Brisbane community has just been such a huge um, gift to, to shape anything that I do mm. next. So yeah, Asia Pacific Triennial was really great. And then um, in terms of a favorite project, that's a really hard question. I actually feel like my favorite projects are the ones I haven't done yet. (laughs) (laughs) They're kind of in the future. Like I'm most excited about those ones. Um, (laughs) Which make it a little bit harder to talk about, but I really feel that... um, yeah, kind of these experiences just make me really excited about, oh, this is something that's possible mm. or this is a way that um, something something that uh, mm. maybe we haven't experimented before in this mm. field. So, yeah, that's there. But I guess, um, yeah, favourite otherwise and that have been, I think, projects with my family that are mm. really just there. I think a lot of the... Um, well, I, that's every project that I've ever worked on, but some have allowed me just to <laughs> um, Yeah, in particular, there was one where just by chance I was able to, um, I was born in Vavatu, I mentioned, and was able just to make that excuse to to name as a really integral part of the, of the process, conversations with grandma time with my dad in the village where we grew up and he was born and growing the plants for the work and 
listening and just spending time. And I think those things that are really coherent with other parts of your life mm-hmm. become transformative in a way that, um, you know, it can be built upon um, in the future. And so those, yeah, it feels like, um, I don't know, yeah, projects that just feel really meet you where you're at kind of a project is great. And I feel like I hear that from both of what you guys have shared mm-hmm. as well, that that's kind of a standout pattern. Mm-hmm. Kind of like this is something I really wanted to do. It was important for what I needed to learn at the time mm-hmm. and for the relationships that you were already sustaining. And, yeah, so I think that's interesting to observe mm-hmm. just those ones that are most meaningful. Um, to us become the favorites. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting you talk about the project you you haven't done yet. It's <laughs> going to be your favorite. I, I kind of feel the same because I know um, I'm in my mid-60s, going towards the end of my life, working life, so to speak, mm. but I feel I will be completely happy with what to tie all up what I've done in the last 30 years in, in or nearly three decades in this field. Uh, women's world has opened up that journey that I'm heading home mm-hmm. and the final one for me was I was supposed to do my PhD this year but I've deferred it and for me it's doing my family history because I come from a generation where knowledge was passed on orally through initiation now fast forward to this current situation where we are uh, the the Poporiana or the Nasara or the meeting ground where knowledge got passed on during funeral, even though it's rare, no longer exists. So I have a, the question I ask myself is, do I take what got passed on to me, with me to the grave? Or how do I, how do I make sure that it's passed on to the next generation in my family? Mm-hmm. But my family is no longer just Book a family. My family, I have people from uh, like globally mixed mm-hmm. blood. Now that's the, that that that's that um, marginalized them from not receiving this knowledge that's linked to the land that li- links to all the uh, dreamtime stories, our cultural um, landmarks in the village on our land because everything is is connected to land and ocean. And the only way I could think about it is because I don't have that space now where we, we could pass this one. The only way to do it is to do it repeats or write it up and then put it in archives. So the kids may not be interested in it, but well, at least I leave it there. Uh, that way I feel I I feel I have not disappointed my ancestors because it's got passed 30,000 years ago to me. And for me, for, for me to continue that, I need to put it somewhere. And this is where I wanted to do it in at the as, a, as my PhD. And just to add on to your uh, a bit more from from your um, your PhD uh, with the Germans, maybe if you if you look into that um, with the Rabal connection, Queen Emma and the Solomon Island, there was also a link with with slavery in that that form. That, uh, and and then in World War One, the, the the British reclaimed Western Solomon and North Solomon, and handed Western back to the Solomon and kept North Solomon, which is Bougain, it's now known as Bougainville, kept it to Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. That, that's the that's the history where we and we we've got some lost relatives in in Samoa. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, that essentially brings um, my questions to a close. Um, but I wonder if there's is there anything else that you might want to add or or say that you or something you want to add in to what you said previously? Something I um, really appreciated from the introductions today was just hearing what motivates each of you to do mm. what you do. And I feel like that can be achieved whether you wear the name of curator or not. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like a... I don't know if it's the words colonial, but it's like a Western construct mm. to think that we need to be in the institutions to do the work. Yeah. Maybe there are other ways also. And I think just to acknowledge that, mm. I mean, Sana and I know Lisa, just hearing more about you, you guys are doing this work of mm. care, taking mm. of being the caretaker mm. yeah. of objects and of stories um, in many different ways. And so mm. I don't know, maybe we need to find a new word, but for me, there's definitely a, a title you wear before mm. you've done curator work mm. that um, is a fire. Mm. For yeah. me, uh, it's, in, it's interesting because I've never seen myself as a curator. Mm. I was seen myself more as a, as a part of the community and a facilitator. I, I provide mm. this space. Mm. Uh, I, I go and knock on the door and just open the door a bit and let you come in. That I, I've seen, <laughs> That's how I've seen myself. Not When people say curator, I, I don't understand what I do as a curator. <laughs> because I... I think that's just the writing stuff. <laughs> I've only seen myself, even though I'm labeled as a curator, I don't see myself as such. Mm. I see myself more as a facilitator or mm. someone who's going to go there and... and, and and prepare the prepare the space for people to come in mm. and be themselves. And it's it's very important for me personally, coming from a from a, an experience where I didn't feel below I belonged, or there was no one that could give me that moral support. So it was a very lonely trip for me up until I met, I met Lisa and. Um, Namila, Grace Vanilao, Grace, yeah, the Grace, and, and his group, and you now in here. I never felt I belonged to anything, and it was a, a really lonely journey, really mm-hmm. sad and lonely, because one of those experiences I had as a curator, you sit, you go and sit down with all the other curators, will say, let's go and have dinner, or let's have a cup of coffee. And when you're in a coffee space, everybody's talking about what they're working on, the art form they're working on. When it comes to my space, I start opening my mouth about Sipikat. They say, oh, I've got to go. There's a meeting. Now, it's either a quiet taste or nobody has the time to learn about that. And we from the Pacific, we, we don't, as, as I said earlier, the kangaroo has been hopping from here to Europe for a very long time. It is now time for the time for the turtle to swim and the turtle might discover this little island. And this little island has very diverse culture. Let a turtle find this thing and bring it up to the fore so people can see it's not hula hula girls. It's not high whiskies. Mm. They're very rich culture there that they need they need to to embrace. Another thing too is let the audience now hear it from the people themselves rather than from someone speaking on their behalf. Mm. I think I will end there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I guess just like final things to say is, um, um, yeah, it's, I think it's as a Pacific person growing up in Australia, 
um, and navigating like the art world, it's it's really complex. It can be really challenging because there's not many of us in the in working in the creative arts industry. Mm-hmm. Um, in Australia, we tend to get a lot of airtime in football, <laughs> or, oh, yeah. or, when, or when we're being violent. Um, exactly. And so, you know, it's it can be it can be quite confusing for. Um, other people in the community, our elders, like I don't even say to my family back home in PNG that I'm an artist. <laughs> I just say I'm a photographer <laughs> because they understand it. So, because <laughs> um, it's really hard to kind of translate what what is an artist, and um, I think working in a museum for four years really helped me understand that Pacific people are intuitively so inherently creative like we are so creative like it is a part of our life it is a part of everything that we do like all the things that we've made like our our canoes our spheres our homes our baskets like the mats that we sleep on like that is a form of creativity and I don't think we give it enough value in terms of like that is actually an art form like even though it is a practical item and museums have really you know created that narrative historically like these are just practical things and you know um archaic things but they're actually like they're works of art and I don't I think that really needs to be really emphasized to um Pacific people that you know we are so creative and I remember um working with the Cook Island community last year at the museum and they just make up these you know they have their, um beautiful drum dance every year to celebrate um Independence Day and they every year they make up new dances new costumes new rhythms and it's like that is creativity like that is art like that is so amazing like they just came up with everything everything new new ideas like that's the essence of being a creative individual and I don't and I think it's just trying to sort of help Pacific people understand like what Westerners think of art is actually our culture and so that's what I've always been trying to do is just like, I'm just practicing my culture, but I'm calling it art or being an artist. <laughs> like it's just, I'm a, yeah, I'm Papua New Guinean and disguised as an artist. <laughs> Essentially, like that's what it feels like I'm doing. I'm just like, I'm just trying to practice my culture in the way, best way that I can. Oh, in, in, this yeah. Yeah. in this study, that's all I'm trying to do. And um, like you were saying before, Auntie, like I think when in the, um, working in these institutions, I do feel more like a conduit rather than a curator. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm yes. the kind of like person who helps community access these collections or get the collections yeah. out to community or get that knowledge from the archives or from academia and, and filter it back out. So it's like this, I always sort of see myself as like this bridge or conduit in terms of like, mm-hmm. you know, information, knowledge going in, knowledge, information going back out. So yeah. And that's not a that's not an easy space to occupy because exactly. you know it's a lot of energy like holding that space for community and then and then, then dealing with institutions infrastructures and there you know there's a lot of problematic issues there and I realized after four years that I can better serve the museums galleries and community better by working on the outside yeah. And I have much more agency, much more sovereignty over what I can do yeah. um, working independently. So. Um, yeah, I think just tread your own path. If you're going to get into the arts, tread your own path, stay strong, stay cl- keep your community members close to you because that's how you survive. Those are the closing thoughts from Auntie Lisa, Auntie Sana and Ruha. Thank you all for sitting and listening with us. This has been such an insightful conversation, especially for myself as someone entering this space. To close this podcast episode again, I want to leave you with a few questions to consider based on what we've spoken about today. 
If you are an industry leader or have power within an institution, whose voices do you elevate? Do you allow masters of knowledge to correctly document your collection? If you are a white person in the role for curating and protecting the works of different heritages, do you give ample opportunities to those from the backgrounds to be with their works and to pass on their knowledge? Or do you even give access to the communities that are representative of these works? In your organisation and institution, are you a gatekeeper or are you someone that creates opportunities for community to engage? Finally, I want to send a final thank you to the podcast guests, Auntie Sana, Auntie Lisa and Ruha. Thank you for providing so much insight into your many projects and work. I'm looking forward to seeing the outcomes of these projects as they continue. Thank you also listeners for giving your time and for sharing space with us. I hope you are continuing to learn with each episode that is published. Just to reiterate, Our Women, Our Stories is taking a short pause while we produce a series of podcasts for the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Arts, 10th Asia Pacific Triennial. All updates will be on my website and social media. Thank you for joining us. This was Women of Good Hearts, Mind and Spirit for the podcast series, Our Women, Our Stories. Thank you.